Welcome to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. Today, I'm having a guest. His name is Shane Thrapp. And I am very, very grateful that he joined this conversation about A Gift from Adversity. I wrote a book called A Gift from Adversity, subtitling Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. These are the adversities that I went through personally, and I wrote um, about it, and it got published in 2020, and it became Amazon number one new release in three different categories. After I published my book, I've gotten a lot of messages from all over the world sharing their adversities and i felt really compelled to create this show and a safe platform where people can normalize the conversation about adversity and mental health and how they overcame the adversity and the gift that came from the adversity so today is not exception i've had great guests so far and i have great guests coming up very very grateful this has been my dream, goal, and manifestation ever since I published my book. So I would love to invite my guest, Shane Thrupp. Shane, thank you you so much for coming to our show. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So can you tell our audience who you are, your name, and what you do? Uh, My name is Shane Thrupp. I am a stay-at-home dad, and I am a life coach. And my specializations are uh, in ADHD and relationships. Wonderful. So um, when you say the life coach about those ADHD and relationship, specifically, like, no, what kind of coaching do you do? So I work with people who have ADHD, um, uh, adults with ADHD for the most part. I also help parents who they likely have ADHD, but they also have uh, children who have ADHD and they're looking to create an environment for their child to kind of thrive. And uh, I help people kind of develop work around the challenges that ADHD, people with ADHD have in their relationships, not just in their, um, their relationships with a spouse or a partner, but also relationships with their family and their friends, like how to explain how ADHD affects them and and how to work around what they have to deal with with ADHD and what that means for them and how people can help uh, minimize the trauma that people who are neurodivergent uh, wind up having in our society. Wow, that's really interesting. And then where can people find you uh website social media and they can find they can find me at creating order from chaos.com and they can also find me at creating order from chaos coaching on facebook okay got it so creating order from chaos.com you can Mm -hmm. reach out to shane if you have this these issues that you are seeking for help Definitely. Great. So, Shay, it's very nice meeting you. 
And this is the first time that we have met and having a conversation about adversity. And I truly appreciate you being vulnerable and then brave to talk about this adversity. Now, can you please share our audience about your adversity that you faced in your life? Uh, Yeah, my childhood, I grew up in Northeast Texas and my childhood was very difficult. I had an alcoholic father, who, while looking back now, was going through a lot of the challenges that people uh, face being just kind of different from the status quo. And he never really was able to kind of process through to have a steady job. He always wound up working for himself or working for close family. And that caused a lot of challenges in my family life because he he was very frustrated with his own life and that frustration with the um, adding on of alcoholism and the challenges that you deal with when you're dealing with that, it caused him to lash out a lot. And the older I got, the more into alcoholism he got and the worse things got for me mentally and emotionally and physically. Uh, I was also raised as in a very strict Southern Pentecostal uh, church, and my mom was very rigid in her teachings, and many of my family members were uh, very rigid in these Old Testament-style teachings in the Bible, and that caused a lot of issues for me because when you're when you're neurodivergent in the South, especially in the 80s and 90s, people didn't understand what that meant. You were always just that weird kid, or like my dad loved to say, I was the smartest dumb kid he ever knew. Um, My mom, um, she did her best, but she was kind of surrounded by an environment that didn't give her the ability to um, really uh, give me any real structure that was positive right? Um, There was a lot of challenges that she had to face because of my dad and the way he was. And that caused a lot of issues for um, us both. But then she, she just didn't, she wasn't able to do for us what she wanted to do. And that caused my dad to lash out at her, but not in a physical manner, but it was, he was very emotionally and mentally abusive against her as well. And so I grew up watching that and seeing that trauma that she was having to experience and then the trauma that I was having to experience as well. And the adding on to that, I grew up in a, um, a, a community that was all white. And there was a school that was nearby me and I went to the school and it was all white children. And then there was another school that was nearby that was all white children and uh, all the way from elementary all the way through high school. And so I didn't have any interactions with uh, people who were um, of different races until I was in sixth grade. And so I had this weird culture shock whenever I went into sixth grade and it caused me to really become very uh, introverted and because I was already very different from uh, many of my peers and dealing with kind of the bullying and the, uh, the, you know, at school and dealing with the abuse at home and dealing with the abuse at church caused a lot of trauma 
to me personally. And that wound up developing into addiction at a young age, um, being homeless at a young, young age, and not really having any direction in my life to go, you know, uh, I had always planned on like getting a football scholarship, but then when I was six, uh, 16, I got hurt really bad uh, uh, working out. And so I, did, I lost all my opportunities for college that I, I had put in place. And so I just kind of really spun out of control. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing um, your childhood and the difficulty I know you said a lot of things that some people who've never been through the abusive situation or bullying itself don't understand the magnitude of impact that can create on children's lives. And then you had kind of stacks of different things that was thrown at you growing up. And how do you, do you remember maybe specific moments or maybe um, incident that was like really impactful or maybe the worst you can recall? There were, hmm, there were a number of different times when my dad did uh, did things to me that uh, didn't make any sense to me at the time. I, I can remember being, um, I would have been five or six, and I was eating cereal at the table, and I uh, I was doing what kids do, where you slurp the milk. And the, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm eating, and I'm, I'm kind of reading a book or, or something along those lines, and uh, I slurp, and I, you know, I put a, a of cereal in my mouth and the next thing i know i'm waking up and i'm kind of like uh crumpled into the cabinet under the sink and my dad had uh backhanded me so hard that i had been knocked out of the chair and wound up actually breaking the cabinet door uh partially in um that that's like one of the worst earliest memories i have of my dad Wow, that's really crazy. I remember getting beaten up by my dad, um, not about the cereal, but kind of similar. I had a, a problem with my lunch, um, school lunch, that um, my grandma was making that kids made fun of. And then I advocate for myself. And then when I told my dad about it, he grabbed my head and pounded my head on the dinner table and they threw me to the door and they kicked me in my stomach and I thought the door was gonna break to the point that I can't even breathe and I was really hoping to escape which I wrote on my book um, but you know those kind of moments will stay with you forever unfortunately and thank you so much for sharing that and you know, especially when you are children, when you're a child and growing up and you have no escape, especially, you know, in those situations where the perpetrator is your, you know, parents and there is nowhere to escape. 
well, I actually escaped, but he chased me and then figured out where I was. So it didn't work. So it's very difficult um, as an adult, like, you know, when you are in that kind of situation, there's some, you know, law enforcement, like police restraining orders, all that stuff that you can rely on to. Um, but as a, ch- as a child, it's very, very difficult to go through that. Yeah. There's a, there's a f- few situations that I faced that were, that really st- stuck out to me now looking back and going, you know, you know, that was just really messed up. Uh, when I was 11 years old, I was in church with my mom and the pastor was um, that fire and brimstone Southern pastor who even in a small church with a microphone feels that he has to yell and scream. And he was talking about all of the people who um, died when uh, Noah's Ark was being made and when the flood happened in the Bible. And I remember looking at my mom and now I have to remind you, I, I'm neurodivergent. So I, I don't really understand a lot of the social niceties at the time. And so I, I kind of looked at my mom and I said, mom, I don't really understand why is God being so mean? And I said that though, at a time where the pastor had made this pause And in church, the pause is there so that people can say hallelujah and amen and kind of call out. But I I said it at the exact point where there was a bit of silence in the church. And so a number of people in the pastor heard me. And so like it's that record skip in the church where everybody just kind of looks at me and the pastor like just turned this bright beet red and he, he stalks down the aisle and he grabs me by my arm and he yanks me out of the pew and drags me up to the front. And he starts calling out to the elders of the church. And these uh, 12 older men come out and they grab the holy oil and the holy water and they start to perform an exorcism on me to drive the demons out of me. And, you know, that was, that was at the time, I didn't understand what was going on, right? But as I got older and I started getting more aware of what the world outside of the community that I lived in was alike, and, you know, because I grew up in a community where it was common for the parents to beat their children. And I don't mean like swat on the butt or anything like that. I mean, belts, leather belts, electrical cords, the metal parts of fly swatters. Um, I got a hammer thrown at me one time by my dad because I cursed. Uh, You know, by the way, my dad cursed like a sailor and I learned the curse words from him. Um, I look back now and I can, I can, I smile, but it's because that's how I process my pain and my, my, my um, angst is through humor. And, uh, you know, I didn't have an environment where people, where it was normal for people to have healthy parenting. So all of my friends dealt with a lot of the similar uh, similar things, and there just wasn't really anywhere to go. And, you know, you talk about as we kind of get older and we are able to start uh, calling in law enforcement my mom got divorced from my dad when I was 16 
However, she left me behind with him because she didn't think that she could take care of me because she was having to get out on her own as her own person after 19 years with this very abusive, very controlling uh, alcoholic uh, person who was horrifyingly toxic. And she had left him before a number of times, but it was, you know, he always did that thing where he would go to church and say, I'm getting better. And he would um, talk about how he's going to change and he's going to stop drinking. And he's going to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, but once you're in that loop of uh, abuse, you, 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 it's very hard for you to get out of it, especially if you keep falling back into the same habits of alcoholism and, and lashing out instead of communicating. And when I was 17, after being with my dad for a year, I, I was, I was at this place where I was a very large, I was six foot tall. I was 250 pounds. I was in really good shape. I worked out all the time. And I, I said, I was telling myself that my, when my dad does comes at me again, I'm going to defend myself. And I remember him coming at me for something I did. And I, I yelled at him. I said, no, you're not going to hit me again. And I, you know, I got ready to fight and my dad saw that and he started laughing and my dad was five, eight and maybe 200 pounds. And he just came at me and slapped me so hard that I just, it knocked me out and into the ground. And I just felt so helpless. But then, you know, I, I kind of just got up and dusted off and he kind of yelled at me for a few minutes. And uh, he told me that if I was feeling froggy, I should jump, you know, and that, you know, I was worthless. He really came down on me really hard. He was telling me a lot of stuff. But then when we went in the house, he grabbed a shotgun and he sat down at the kitchen table and he sat there and he just stared at me as he was loading the shotgun. And then he put the shotgun and aimed it at me and put it on the table. And he said, if you feel like you can make it to me, come at me. And I, I didn't know what to do. I went to, I like, I went to get up to go to my bedroom to get away from him. And he said, Nope, you're going to sit there. And I, I sat there for maybe 30 minutes or so, just staring at this 12 gauge shotgun pointed at me and I, I didn't know what to do. And finally I, I, I was like, can I sit on the sofa? Can I, you know, can I watch TV? And he goes, yeah, you can turn on TV but you stay right there where I can see you. And so as I, as I was sitting there, I, I went, you know, I, I knew this, the, the telephone was not far from the sofa. So I kind of snagged it on my way over to the sofa. And so I'm sitting there and the shotgun's probably 15 feet away from me. And I sit here and I just kind of start dialing 911. And so as the operator comes on, I kind of like act as if I'm laying down and I just kind of whispered into the receiver and I said, I'm at, you know, this address and I'm in danger. My dad has a shotgun pointed at me. I can't talk loud. And uh, I remember the, the 911 operator kind of going, okay, we've got you. I know where you're at. We've got some people coming, but it's going to take a little bit. Um, are you, how much danger? And I'm like, I've got a, sh I've got a shotgun pointing at me. Uh, and she's like, okay, okay, just 
keep the phone on. Don't turn off uh, phone off. Don't hang up. Just you know, just stay calm as calm as possible. And in the meantime, you can hear my dad yammering in the background and 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 you know talking about uh, just all these different things and how he wasn't ever going to let me um, live this down and he was going to you know if I came at him again he was going to kill me and. And finally, after about 45 minutes, because I lived way out in the boondocks, way out in the country, the nearest town to me was 20 miles away. Um, but uh, apparently there was, uh, I lived next to an interstate and the state troopers were nearby. And so they were able to come within 30 minutes. And I remember seeing them kind of stacking up uh, their cars kind of uh, off to the side where my dad wouldn't be able to see out the windows. And then I saw the police kind of coming across the um, yard, but then the dog started barking and my dad kind of got up and he had the shotgun kind of in his hands and he kind of walked towards the door. And as soon as he did, I kind of like bolted for my bedroom and I watched the police like draw down on my dad and he's holding the shotgun in his hand and he kind of puts it down uh, because he knew uh, a couple of the state troopers who uh, showed up. And he kind of put his hands up and they they wound up arresting him and taking him to um, the county jail. And I, I I yelled out the window. I said, he has my car keys. I, I need the car keys. And so um, they, you know, searched him. They got the car keys out. And then I went to my mom and I said, and, you know, I drove to my mom's house. I, I said, you have to take me in. I said, I don't have anywhere to go. And I'm, I'm halfway through my, uh, my high school year. And I finally thought I was in a place where I could at least graduate high school and and be in this place where I would be able to start trying to figure out how to um, restructure my life. Like I said, I had lost scholarships that I was looking forward to from an injury. And when about a couple of months later, my mom tells me that she's moving to Houston to live with her boyfriend and that I needed to make it on my own. And um, I lashed out at her and I, I, I yelled at her like I did, like I had seen my dad do. And that, that drove a really serious wedge between my mom and me. Um, she wound up helping me as much as she could until I got through college or uh, until I got through high school. Um, but then I was just kind of on my own. And of course I burned every bridge with my dad at this point. And my mom was, uh, you know, 800 miles away in Houston. And I was just, I, I fell into addiction. Uh, I was got, I got hung up on oxycodone and hydrocodone and, and, and I, and I was just, I was homeless essentially. I lived out of a car that I got from a settlement from um, a car accident, and yeah, it was it was a really rough time for three years after that point, where I was literally bouncing from house to house and living with whoever would put me up, and I was abusing people and I was abusing friends and I was doing a lot of really horrible things but I was doing things that I thought I needed to do to get by. And looking back, I can just see like all of the different things that I did to people and how my childhood had influenced that this was okay to do to people. And it, that was, that was a really, really bad time in my life.
Shane, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your story. This is by far really um, heartbreaking, intense story I've ever heard, especially the part, it, it sounds like a movie, but it's not, it's your life. And it's crazy to me that your own father can do that to a child and it truly breaks my heart. And I just want you to know, I just want audience to know these child abuse, I wrote it on my book. The parents don't have prerequisite to be a parent, like becoming a lawyer or doctor, you have to go through school to become a parent. And that is the biggest job in the world to be raising a human being yeah, they don't have any training to do that. And they don't have sometimes supervision for that. Therefore, sometimes, like yourself or myself, I was in Japan, you are in America, but we universally, unfortunately, went through these hardships in our lives. And you fell into this addiction. However, you had self-awareness and you got out of it. Now, I would like to shift a question to a tools that you have used to overcome these adversities. The reason why I ask all my guests, we have these tools and resources these days, internet, books, but what I want to get to the heart of this interview and part of the vision is we as a survivor of these extreme adversities, we try so hard to discover or find like what to do to help ourselves. So now, what was your best tools that worked for you, Shane? It took me a really, really long time to learn about those tools. Um, so once I hit 20, I, I, um, I kind of left the church and then I, I got back into church and I was going to a really good church. And I got a lot of healing from the various pastors. And I actually started learning to become a pastor myself. I became an associate pa uh, pastor. And what the way that they had structured the system, you always had somebody you could turn to. And so there was retreats that we went on that kind of helped us kind of deal with the trauma and stuff like that, that we had went through as children. And so there was a lot of healing there. Um, unfortunately, I, um, I wound up getting into a relationship with a woman who you know, it's that classic story of all of your friends are warning you that there's something wrong with this person, that that that, that they're not a good fit for you, that they're, um, there's something just a little off about them. But I was in the church and she uh, she got pregnant. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm the father, so, you know, I... I uh, my childhood was, you know, the man is the head of the household and he's meant to, you know, uh, start making a living and uh, providing for the child. And the church I was in was very strong about that. And so here she is, she's pregnant and we aren't married. And so the church was very, you know, adamant that you have to get married. And I did. 
and I it was it it turned out very bad for me because I fell back into an abusive relationship and I didn't know how to deal with it and you you know I wound up having two children with her and I I I feel like I tried really hard to um start breaking the cycle of abuse because I decided very early on that I wasn't going to be my dad, right? I was never going to hit my kids. I was never going to um, raise my kids to be scared of me or, or things of that nature. And so I had started like learning and practicing and trying to figure out how to be a good parent. And, you know, because like you said, we're not trained to be parents. There's no, you know, curriculum for that. And so I had the, you know, I was always very computer savvy. And so I was always researching things and I was reading books on how to be a parent. And I saw so many things that I went through as a child, as uh, a child of abuse. And I said, okay, um, I'm going to start breaking this, these, this, these chains that are kind of around me. And, but the more I kind of focused on my kids, the more abuse my wife was putting on me. And then I was lashing out at her like I had seen my dad do. Because my, while my kids were really good, uh, they were amazing kids, they were seeing their mother kind of lashing out at me. And I tried so hard not to do that. But what I was doing was I was repressing that frustration and I was repressing that anger. And so finally I would lash out and I would like punch the wall or I would, uh, I threw my game controller across the room one time and kind of like in her direction and we would yell at each other and fight with each other. And so as much as I was trying to be a good parent, my kids were in this really toxic environment. And finally one day I just said, I've had enough because she wound up cheating on me with a number of people. And, you know, I'm working 100 hours at this point a week trying to, you know, make a living. Uh, we're paying a horrifyingly huge amount of money every month for rent. She wants to be a stay-at-home mom. And so I'm, I'm not able to see my kids as much. And so once that divorce happened and she took the kids from me, I was kind of, again, kind of thrust into this. Uh, cycle of, again, addiction and all of these different things. And, and that happened, that kept going for a long time. And then I started learning about ADHD because my son, my oldest son was diagnosed with ADHD and I didn't know what that meant. And so the more I started learning about ADHD, the more I started learning about my childhood and what that meant for me. And then I started learning about what kind of environment that a person like that needs, they need structure, even though we hate structure. They need um, a schedule, even though we are so scatterbrained sometimes that it's very hard for us to stick to it. We need to have a good communication skills, even though our communication style is so much different from other people. And so as I started getting older and started finally realizing that I needed to get um, help. I finally found us. Uh, I met my wife, my new wife at this point, uh, and she's a special needs teacher. 
And she started making a lot of observations and saying, hey, look, these are the ways that we can work together on these things. This is how we can communicate so that you can start do, start moving forward. And uh, she really started encouraging me to get uh, to see a psychiatrist and get an official diagnosis because that's where you start process that's where you start get being able to get the medication and i i didn't have a guide through this before but now i did and so as my wife and i were kind of going through our relationship and growing together she was teaching me all of these tools that she taught her own students how to communicate effectively and i was also learning that stuff from my therapist at the time and we find in my and my psychiatrist and I have finally found a medication regimen that started really helping me kind of meet things. And my therapist said something to me and it struck me so hard. She's because my, my biggest thing was I want to be normal. I want to be a normal person, right? I want to, I want to be able to go to a job, work there for 50 years. I want to be able to have a steady relationship. I want to be able to be a good parent and my my therapist one day and she got fed up because i had said this for months at this point and she goes there is no normal nobody is normal everybody is different everybody has different trials that they go through a different adversity that they face nobody is normal and so trying to attain this unrealistic expectation of yourself is causing self-trauma you're hurting yourself. And that's what woke me up. It took it took forever for it to finally like, you know, click in me for some reason. But it, I was at a place where I was receptive to hear it. And as she told me that it, it changed my life. I stopped trying to attain this thing that wasn't attainable for me and started actually putting in place um, goals for myself, goals for my children. And then, you know, as I kind of go through this and my my relationship with my wife is getting better and better and better, and we're getting a stronger and stronger style of communication. And she's developed this environment where I can come to her and say anything I need to. I can always trust that she's going to um, give me honest feedback and give me very strong and very well-developed techniques that I can use for myself. And it was us working together that really started giving me the structure that I needed and in the way that I needed it. Because that's the thing with ADHD, when you're trying to help somebody uh, build that structure, you can't just give them a five-step process to do it. It has to be a customized system for that they develop with like help from other people around them. And that's where my practice fo focuses on is, is giving people a customized um, um, approach to whatever they're trying to achieve. And the more I kind of kept developing and learning about how to deal with my own ADHD, I kind of started going, I want to be something different. I've, I've been a project manager for a very long time at this point, or, or some some sort of management role or leader role. And I was so tired of it. But then I got really sick uh, one year. And I wasn't able to work like I used to. 
and um, I had developed social anxiety disorder at this point, and I was going through a really bad depression, and all of the trauma from my childhood had finally caught up with me. Now, I had all of these tools, right? I had a psychiatrist, I had a therapist, my wife had built this environment of trust and, and honesty and communication in our household. And we had worked really hard together to kind of build this uh, environment where I, if I was feeling down, I could sit here and say, hey, I'm, I'm not able to do this today. And she was like, I got you, you know? And that structure finally led me to finding a life coach, uh, hilariously enough. And I was like, I want to do something. And the more we kind of went through my passions and my goals and my uh, trying to figure out my purpose, the more my purpose started developing into, I want to help people who have been going through what I've gone through. I, I, I didn't want to be a therapist, right? I'm too empathetic to be a therapist. It's very hard for me to hear other people's story and not tear up or not feel the pain because I know the pain, right? I understand the pain too well. And with ADHD, you feel your emotions very hard. That's our problem. We feel the rejection that people give us. We feel the trauma that people place on us. We feel the disappointment and the, um, the, uh, the, even the well-meaning disappointment, right? The teachers who are, you're so smart. Why do you keep, um, why are you so lazy? Why don't you push yourself? That's traumatic for people who are doing their best but don't know any better, right? So when you're trying to help people, I wanted to be able to help people for the now and for the future. Therapists work on the now and the past, and it's a very valuable resource. And so coaches aren't therapists. We can help by listening. We can help by being there. But our goal is to work on the now and achieving your goals, building new habits, building new uh, structures, putting them in place and, and helping people that way. And so I became a life coach and I, you know, you, you coach what you know. And so I know relationships. I know how to build strong uh, relationships based on com communication, consent, um, trust, honesty. And I know how to help people with ADHD overcome what they have to deal with. And that's, that's my happy point. Because as I'm learning this, I'm also learning how to give my kids the opportunity to have two, uh, I have twin two and a half year olds. And when you have ADHD, it's inheritable. There's a 60% chance that my kids are going to have ADHD. So I'm creating an environment for my kids to thrive. It doesn't matter if they have ADHD anyways, because if you're building that environment that they can trust you to be able to come to you and communicate with you, and they know that you're always going to be there for you, and they're not going to get in trouble for talking to you. And, and when you build that environment, even kids who are neurotypical thrive in that kind of environment. And, and so it helps any, no matter what, it helps. 
And so what I want to have happen and what I hope to happen is to give my children that environment so that no matter what, they will be able to follow their passions. They'll be able to fulfill the goals. They'll be able to uh, understand how to critically think about things, how to problem solve. And it's actually why I'm going to homeschool them because homeschooling them allows me to have more influence in giving them the resources to learn the way that they need to learn. They don't have these unrealistic expectations of having to keep up with their peers. They can focus on keeping up with what they want to learn and how they want to learn it. Well, thank you so much. One of the audience says nice, amazing story so far. Uh, thank you. I keep getting told that I need to write a book, but <laughs> I, um, my brain goes, you don't know how to write a book. <laughs> and I, and so I, I, I keep trying to figure out what I want to do with this. So right now it's just kind of essentially telling people my stories and I do so, I do, I do really good in this kind of medium where I'm on a podcast or a YouTube channel. And so as I kind of go through and I tell the story, I feel like this allows me to at least get this part out. And eventually, I guess if I tell the story enough, I'll just essentially be able to take it and then just transcribe it down and, and put the stories in there. Yeah. Um, so I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, no, Shane, this is by far most compelling, traumatic yet. Um, the story that it should not have stigma on talking. So this is exactly why I created this pl platform, I give from adversity, to be able to talk about adversity and then not just dwelling onto it, but how do we overcome? So the mm -hmm. last part of it is a gift that came from an adversity. So how do you identify what is your gift that came from the adversity? The gift that came from my adversity is an understanding that um, it's okay to live a life that other people don't understand. You know, it's okay to be different. It's okay to be who you are just be as authentically you as possible, right? Just be who you are. And that's where I've learned my happy places. I, I don't live my life to please others. I live my life to make sure that my children are happy. I live my life to make sure that my wife is happy. I live my life to make sure that my friends have support and love and that everybody around me knows that they can always count on me, that, you know, I want, that's where, I guess that's the lesson that really struck with me because if I hadn't had that kind of childhood, I wouldn't appreciate the, the lessons that I learned for my own kids, right? My having that kind of childhood set teaches me to be a better parent because I know what bad parenting looks like. I know what trauma looks like. I understand what um, alcoholism does to uh, families. I understand what addiction does to a person. I understand all of these different things. And now understanding all of that gives me the ability to both be at home with my kids 
and still run a business where I'm helping others who have gone through what I've gone through or who've gone through similar situations with different issues, um, being on the autism spectrum, uh, dealing with depression, dealing with anxiety. I've learned so much from just being who I am that as I kind of, I've kind of learned how to use my ADHD as the superpower it is, because when I want to research something, I can focus on it for months and months, right? They, it's the hyper focus. If you build the uh, environment where you have the resources to, to focus your um, hyper focus into the things that allows you to help other people or to follow your passions or to fulfill your purpose, then you become this machine of just unlimited potential. And you look at people out there in the world who are these CEOs of massive multi-billion dollar industries, and you look at them talking about the stories of their childhood and how they grew up. Uh, Elon Musk is a good example. He um, he has uh, he was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, which is part of the autism spe spectrum. People are going to get really mad at me about that because some people don't feel that they're this that it's a part of it. But you know, controversial science, you know, however you want to look at that. But you look at him; he was in an environment where he was able to thrive, and then he's able and he has that privilege to be able to have the resources that his father was able to pass on to him. And then he creates this multi-billion dollar uh, business and he becomes literally the richest man on the planet. And now not everybody has those resources. So you have to develop your own thing and not everybody is cut out or has the ability or the privilege to be that kind of CEO, but we can follow our own passions and purposes and if I can help just one person fulfill their purpose, or if I can help people find their goals and find that way to, to give their children the way to thrive, then I'm not just passing on to other adults. I'm also affecting the children who are coming up. Sorry. Sorry. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, one of the audience said, as always, also write a book. You already have an amazing story. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes. Well, Shane, I really appreciate you sharing your most vulnerable story. And I am very, very sorry what happened to you. And I'm very sorry that you didn't have support and advocacy system when you should be protected of these incidents that you had to go through. However, I was the same way when in Japan there was no talk about sexual abuse, no understanding about PTSD. Women's rights are still not 100% like this country. So I had so many odds and so many enemies that I didn't know what to do with, that I didn't have any recognition whatsoever that I was suffering with the mental health either. So we, our generation, that I feel it's our mission to be able to normalize the mental health issues 
adversity and being an advocate for these children, generations that you talked about, that how much of the power can we give them to thrive in their environment and be an advocate for them when these things happen to them, watch out these signs. And it's getting better and better, especially in America. I've seen that system supporting these children. But yeah, there are so much stigma around talking about mental health. I just wrote an article about Student Alliance on Mental Health, a new club that's formed in um, my town. I'm a journalist. And when I was interviewing these um, high school students, they even had a stigma that maybe nobody would support them about the mental health. Nobody... Uh, would join, but in the end, a lot of people are supported because you know we went through this global pandemic where everybody went through depression, isolations, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, we as a survivor of adversities, I feel the same way as you that we do have the mission to better our next generation and put ourselves force in front of these issues that's why i created this platform and that's why i'm so grateful that you came on to this show and vulnerably shared your real story what happened to you and how much of the pain and suffer that you have to endure however do you're thinking about the community and next generation to come so i really appreciate you being here thank you so much for having this platform it's it's helping a lot of people i've listened to some of the stories that you've had in in your past guests and some of those stories are so heartbreaking but at saying at the same time overcoming that and seeing the people fighting back and then not just fighting back but also giving themselves back and giving to their communities and giving um, to the people around them. Uh, uh, You shared the one with your college friend where he's going back and he's talking to the police and talking to about uh, criminal justice reform and things of that nature. These people who were facing all of this pain are now going people need to hear our stories so that they know that they're not alone and they know that they're not um they're not dealing with these things on their own they they have uh they can see people who are still going on to achieve greatness and then not just not just selfish gains but then selflessly giving themselves back to the system to say we need to be better to everyone around ourselves. And we see too many people being so selfish and, and concerned with themselves. And But we need to see more people who are pushing themselves out there like yourself to raise the, 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 the flags that need to be seen for mental health, sexual abuse, ment- you know, mental abuse, emotional abuse, and go we have to do a better job for the next generation so that they're able to be better for the next generation. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much again, Shane, for coming to A Gift from Adversity. It's been a pleasure getting to know you. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. And for our audience, we have wonderful guests coming up. I am so grateful 
that my vision and platform that I've been wanting to create is resonating and attracting a lot of um, wonderful guests like yourself, but look for more episodes coming up and inspire each other and help each other and then being kind to each other. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much again. Have a good night. You too.